invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you uh, in the chair or the pew where you're sitting, uh, you'll find our passage on page 980 and 981. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. This is God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, if we were to think of the Bible as a majestic mountain range... This passage here, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, would be one of the greatest and highest peaks in that range. As we survey all of the Bible, this is one of those passages that just really stands out in its grandeur and magnitude. And actually, one of the challenges in preaching a text like this is discerning what to say and what not to say, because there's so much that could be said. And so... What I think will be most helpful for us this morning is to see how Paul's words here in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 fit into the larger message of the letter that he is writing to the church in Philippi. And as we do that, what what I want us really to see is that a church, and this this is what I think Paul is communicating through this passage, is that a church that walks worthy of the gospel is a unified church. And a unified church is a church that worships and follows Jesus, the servant Lord. Okay, so I'll say that again. A church that walks worthy of the gospel is a unified church. And a unified church is a church that worships and follows Jesus, the servant Lord. All right, so let's let's start to, to look at that truth and unpack it. First of all, let's consider this. A church that walks worthy of the gospel is a unified church. Now, this really takes us back to the text that we looked at last week in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And if you look back at verse 27, you see there that uh, Paul tells us there that a church that lives a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a church that stands firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Okay, So you notice there the emphasis on unity. A church that walks worthy of the gospel is a church that is one in spirit, one in mind, and strives side by side together. Okay, And so this, this is what Paul is talking about at the end of chapter 1. A, a church that works worthy of, walks worthy of the gospel is a unified church. Now notice that this theme then continues now into chapter 2 as we come into chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. Because in chapter 2 verse 2 Paul says, Complete my joy... Here it is, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. So, so this is the theme that's coming from chapter 1 now into chapter 2. That a, a church that walks worthy of the gospel is a unified church. It's a church that has the same mind, the same heart, the same spirit that's walking side by side and is in full accord. Now, it's, it's interesting as we, we hear Paul's admonition here to the church to contrast that with how we experience relationships and community in our own lives and the spheres in which we live. There was a study actually that was conducted in August of 2018, so that wasn't very long ago at all, uh, just several months back. And study found that 76% of people globally believe that their country is divided. And 59% believe that their country is more divided today than it was 10 years ago. It might not surprise you that in that same study they found that Americans believe, 84% of Americans believe, that our country is divided and 67% of Americans believe that our country is more divided today than it was 10 years ago. So what we can conclude from this study is that most people around the world don't believe that getting along is humanity's greatest strength. We're not particularly good at this. And it's actually hard to argue with that conclusion. As we as we think about our own experiences in relationships and community, as we witness even certain things happening within our own nation. And so it's no small thing here that, that the Apostle Paul is calling the church to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is not natural to us as humanity. It's actually rather unique it's fair to say that it is, for most people, distinct from how they experience relationships and community. Not only is this call a unique call to distinctness, it is also a call for our joy. You notice there in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, he begins there by saying, complete my joy. Now, one of the things that we've seen in this letter already is that Paul, even though he finds himself in unpleasant circumstances, he's writing this letter from prison, even though he finds himself in unpleasant circumstances, Paul is marked by joy. Paul is happy in Jesus. But Paul says here in this passage that if, if you really, really want to top off his joy, if you really want to put the icing on the cake, then church in Philippi, be united with one another in love. And of course, this must be the wish of every faithful pastor. 
That the people of God with whom they are entrusted to care for, that they would know each other and they would love each other and they would live together with one another in true unity. But not only does Paul admonish them towards this kind of relational unity and, and richness for his joy, but also for their joy. For the Philippians' joy. Back in chapter 1, verse 25, we saw there that Paul said that his whole ministry is, is for this purpose, for their progress and joy in the faith. And surely as he admonishes them here to live together in love and unity with one another, he, he admonishes them to do so for the sake of their joy. And just consider this. I mean, it makes sense. Consider all the benefits, all the blessings that come to us when our families or our friendships or our churches are characterized by genuine love and unity and oneness. There's a reason why the psalmist said in Psalm 133, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Just to illustrate this point, in May of 2017, the New York Times reported that dozens of studies have shown that people who have satisfying relationships with family, friends, and their community are happier, have fewer health problems, and live longer. In fact, one study, in one study, researchers found that those with close social ties, so they have good relationships with those around them, those who have close social ties, and unhealthy lifestyles, such as smoking, obesity, and lack of exercise, actually live longer than those with poor social ties, so they don't have good relationships, but have healthy lifestyles. So they don't smoke, and they're not obese, and they exercise. So, so actually, in this study, it showed that relational connectedness has greater benefits to our health than even do, like having a healthy lifestyle. Now, let me say this. The main reason Paul is calling us to unity here in this passage is not for our health benefits, okay? So I'm, I'm not suggesting that. But, but I, do, I, I do mention that just to point out that when God calls us into loving community with one another, it really is for our good at so many different levels. God made us for relationships. He made us for community. And we are more inclined to thrive spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even physically, in genuine, loving community. And so when Paul tells us here to to, to live with one another in love and in community, we shouldn't see this as like a, a burdensome, kind of oppressive call or command, like, oh man, this is going to be hard, we've got to love people and forgive each other. It, it is, it is going to be hard in many ways, but this is actually a gracious and kind invitation from the Lord for our joy. So, how do we experience this unity that Paul speaks of in these verses? And this leads us to our next point. So first point, a church that lives worthy of the gospel is a unified church. Second point, we become that unified church in part by worshiping Jesus. We worship and follow Jesus, the servant Lord. And let's consider this next point now 
to worship Jesus, the servant Lord. Notice there in verse 5 that Paul says this, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, Paul cites an early Christian hymn. So you, know, it's, you think about it, if, if you've heard preaching throughout your life, different times, a pastor or preacher's trying to make a point, and he might cite a hymn or a poem. And that's essentially what Paul is doing here. He's calling them to unity. And then in verse 6, he cites an early Christian hymn. The hymn runs from verse 6 all the way through to verse 11. And like our hymns, like our songs that we sang even this morning, this hymn is a poetic expression of worship. And in this, in this hymn, the focus of the hymn is the person of the Lord Jesus. Now, now this is really important to notice, that as Paul calls the church to unity here in these verses, Paul believes that the key to the church being unified with one another is not just principles or strategies or how-tos, right? So, so like communication skills or be kind to one another or whatever it might be. Those things have those, their place. But Paul does not believe that that's going to be the most transformative um, element to the church becoming unified with one another. Rather, Paul believes that the deepest and most lasting transformation that will happen in the church comes through worship. Principles and strategies will only take us so far. Worship will carry us much further. And so Paul now invites the church in Philippi. He, he really lays before them the person of the Lord Jesus and invites them to worship the Lord Jesus. And as they do so, as they see him for who he is, as they worship him for who he is, they will be transformed to become like him. So what does Paul say about Jesus through this hymn. First, he says that Jesus is God. Notice there in verse 6, he says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there's been a lot written and people talk about what does it mean that Jesus is in the form of God. It's actually, I think, very clear from the context. You just have to read a little bit further. What does it mean that Jesus is in the form of God? Notice what he says there in verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, here it is, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So for Jesus to be in the form of God means he's equal with God. Paul goes on in the very next phrase to define what he means. Jesus, preexistent second person of the Trinity, was in the form of God. He was equal with God. But notice this. Not only is Jesus God, Paul goes on to say that Jesus is man. Look there in verse 7. But He made Himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we see the humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus and that Jesus put our interest above his own. And out of love for his Father and out of love for us, he humbled himself. And in order to demonstrate the humility of Jesus, Paul here rehearses Jesus' descent down, down, down into humility. 
Notice this progression. So he's in the form of God, but then he goes down. He is born in the likeness of men. As the Apostle John tells us, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. So the divine assumes the limitations and the frailty of humanity. But, but this, is not on, this is not all. Jesus goes down further. He was in the form of God, then He goes down. He's born in the likeness of men, but He goes down further. Notice, and He takes the form of a servant. So He doesn't come down like as, as any man. He doesn't come down as, and, and, and come among us as king or as Caesar or as a powerful president or a pampered and adored celebrity. No, he comes to us as the, in the form of a servant. Actually, the word there, servant, is doulos. It can be translated slave. But this is not all. Jesus goes down further. Not only does he come to us in the form of a servant, but he goes down. He becomes obedient to the point of death. Now here is a mystery, no doubt. The infinite becomes finite. The eternal gives way to mortality and to death. And why does Jesus succumb to death? Why does He choose to succumb to death? This is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ because death is our greatest enemy as sinners. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So the price that we pay for our sin is death and sin always collects. So Jesus died for us. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died the death we deserve so that we might receive the life that He deserves. But this is not all. Jesus goes down even further. He not only dies, but Paul says He becomes obedient to the point of death. Here it is, even death on a cross. So as we all know, death on a cross was horrific. In fact, in Roman society, it was reserved for the worst of criminals and the lowest of society. It was actually forbidden in Roman society for a Roman citizen to die by crucifixion. Cicero wrote these words regarding crucifixion. Quote, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. End of quote. Do you want to know how low the Lord Jesus went? The divine servant himself was not even afforded the protections of a Roman citizen. He went all the way down, even unto crucifixion, to be killed as a criminal. Notice here in these verses that the contrast between the beginning of verse 6 and the end of verse 9 could not be more stark. At the beginning of verse 6, we learn that Jesus is in the form of God. And at the end of verse 9, we realize that He has succumbed to death, even death on a cross. Down, 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 
down he goes. Jesus descended to the depths of human depravity and misery and death for our sake. Notice, now in the hymn there is another dramatic turn. And we see this in verse 9. Therefore, as a result of God humbling Himself, becoming a man, taking on flesh, dying. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted Him. Now, the word there, highly exalted, that's the way it's translated in the ESV, is actually a combination of two words in the original. So, the first word is actually hyper- And the second word is exalted. So it could literally be translated, God has hyper-exalted Him. And how has God hyper-exalted Jesus, the God-man? You see it there in the text. He has bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So so this is how God the Father has hyper-exalted God the Son, Jesus. He has hyper-exalted Him by giving Him a name. And what is that name? What is the name that He has given Him? It's actually not the name Jesus. He already, before he humbled himself and became a man and died and was resurrected, he already had the name of Jesus. And Jesus was actually a very common name in Jesus' day. In the Hebrew, it's Joshua. It's a very common name. The name that God the Father has now granted to the Son is the name Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, it's important that we understand that Paul, as he's writing these words, Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Jewish scholar. He had been trained as a Pharisee. I say all of that to make this point. Paul knew his Bible, and he knew it really well. And in these verses here... In particular, in verse 10 and 11, Paul is actually citing an Old Testament passage of Scripture. It comes from the book of Isaiah. And let me tell you what's happening in this passage. It's in Isaiah chapter 41 to 45. And in this section of Isaiah, God is declaring His uniqueness as God. And he is doing so by emphasizing, at least in part he does so, by emphasizing his name. And his name is Yahweh. It is the covenant name, the personal name of God in the Bible. And and the way we translate Yahweh into English is Lord. So let let me give you a few examples of this. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 13, God says this, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. Chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. Chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, Yahweh, and apart from me there is no Savior. 
Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord, this is what Yahweh says. Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 18. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. You get the idea. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 to 23, which is what Paul is citing here in Philippians 2. And this is what God says. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Here it is. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And the Apostle Paul takes those words that are clearly spoken by God, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, and he applies them to the Lord Jesus. God grants, this, this is what's happening. God, Jesus was in the form of God. He became a man, the God-man. He went down low, low, low. He humbled himself over and over again, embraced shame and misery and death, even death on a cross. But now God has hyper-exalted him, and he has hyper-exalted him by giving him the name Lord, Yahweh. And at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that he is God. And so there's no doubt here that Paul believes that the Lord Jesus is God, that He is Lord, that He is worthy of worship. And there is no doubt, that this is interesting, there is no doubt that this is what the early church as a whole believed. You know, some people will say, well, you know, the whole idea that Jesus is, is Lord, that was actually kind of a later development. You know, oh, centuries later, people kind of came, you know, the story continued to evolve and develop, and people, you know, started to apply things to Jesus that he never really meant for himself, or, or even the early church meant in regards to Jesus. But that's not the case at all. Here we have an early Christian hymn. This is just 30 years, written just 30 years after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and here we have the early church confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me just say, my friends, if you have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus yet, I would encourage you to do so this morning. Because if you do not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus now, this passage here tells us, and Paul is informing us, that one day you will, every knee, every tongue will confess that He is Lord, that He is worthy of worship, that He is God. Now notice here as well, and I want you to see this, that the relational richness the Bible invites us to enjoy cannot be divorced from the person of Jesus Christ. So you know, there, there are folks, and maybe you've felt this way about Christianity before, there are folks who say, I want the love and the peace and the forgiveness and the unity that the Bible offers, but I'm not really into the doctrine." the dogma, the claims, the beliefs about who Jesus is. Another way to put this, and maybe you've heard someone say this before, maybe you've taken this position yourself before, is to say, I want the Christian ethic, the Christian morality, but not the Christian confession. 
But do you see here how Paul so intricately weaves the two together? You cannot divorce the one from the other. God wants us to experience loving, rich community. But that does not come first and foremost by adopting a set of principles or strategies. And Paul does not... Paul says, listen, if you take Jesus out of it, who he is, who he claims to be, you, you rip it of all its power, of all its force, of all its import. First and foremost, we experience the ethic and morality of the Christian faith by worshiping a person, the Lord Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. And it's as we see Him for who He is, and it's as we worship Him for who He is, that we are transformed into a people who are enabled to experience the community that God calls us to and that our hearts long for. So, a church that walks worthy of the gospel is a unified church. And a church that's unified is a church that worships Jesus as servant Lord. And then next, and this is our last and final point, a church that is a unified church follows Jesus. Not only worships Jesus, but follows Jesus, the servant Lord. And we won't spend nearly as much time on this point. This is found in verses 2 through 5. Look there. We read these words. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, so, so we're to worship Jesus, right? And, and our hearts are to be captured by Him. And it's as our hearts are captured by Him, then we are to follow Him and follow His example. Now notice the way that Paul speaks about this, though, following his example in verse 2. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, it's worth noting here because I think a lot of people read this passage and think that what Paul's advocating here is kind of a a mindless uniformity. And, and that's not what Paul is calling us to. Th this is not a prohibition against any diversity of thought or ideas among the people of God. Paul's not suggesting that all the believers in Philippi should have the favorite, their, you know, everyone should have their uh, same favorite color and the same favorite sports team. And everybody likes the same music. That's not what Paul is, is calling for here when he says that they are to have the same mind and, and, and have one mind. Actually, Paul defines what he means by that if we just read further in the passage. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, I want you to have the same mind, I want you to have one mind, and then he goes on to identify what that mind is, right? In chapter 2, verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The mind he wants us all to have is the mind of Christ. That's the, kind, that's the mind he wants us to have. And what is the mind of Christ? Well, verses 3 through 4, it's a mind of humility. It's a mind that counts others more significant than ourselves. It's a mind that looks not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's the mind of Christ that, that compelled him 
to leave heaven, to become a man, to die on a cross for our sakes. Paul wants us to have that mind. It's not the same opinion, that everybody has the same opinion about everything. It's the same mindset, the same attitude. Neither, and I think this is a helpful distinction as well, neither, as Paul calls us to, as he says in verse 3, count others more significant than ourselves, he is not calling us to self-hatred. He's not calling us to perpetually put ourselves down and beat ourselves up. I think some Christians, unfortunately, read these verses this way, and that's kind of practically how they lived it out. So, so they perceive humility as kind of a constant belittling of themselves. Oh, I'm, I'm not very attractive. I'm, I'm dumb. I don't have really anything to offer. And, you know, they're just always kind of belittling themselves and, and talking down about themselves. It's, it's actually quite sad. I wish we had more time to talk about this and unpack it. Listen to what one commentator says, though, on this point. Quote, when Paul uses this word in his encouragement to value others above ourselves, he is not counseling his readers to beat themselves up or to put themselves down. Instead, he is urging them to build up and lift up others. The focus is not negative, but positive. Let the needs and interests of others surpass yours. Put them in first place. Give them the place of honor. Respect them. Listen to them. Speak about them. Serve them. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Putting others instead of ourselves in the center of our concern will cause a radical Copernicum revolution in the community. End of quote. You see, you can belittle yourself all the time and like beat yourself up. And actually, that have no reference to other people in the sense of like serving them or helping them. Actually, it all just becomes about self-pity. And in a strange and ironic way, it turns everything back on yourself in a different way. That's not what Paul's calling us to here. Paul's not calling us to a constant belittling of self, but calls, calling us to look outside of ourselves and to consider others, to consider their interests. To love them, to serve them, to help them. And I love how this one author puts it. When that happens, when the focus of a community becomes the interest of others, it can be like a Copernican revolution in the community. You know what a Copernican revolution is? That's when, prior to the 16th century, you know, everyone believed that the earth was stationary in the center of the universe, but Copernicus discovered that the sun was the center of the universe and the earth and the other planets rotated around. It transformed everything, right? The way we saw everything. And Philippians chapter 2 has the potential for a spiritual and moral Copernican revolution in your life and in your family and in the church. When we realize that we are not the center of the world, but God in Christ is the center of the universe. And as we worship Him and as we follow Him, we realize that our worlds do not revolve around ourselves but our worlds revolve around glorifying God by loving and serving others. Now, if everyone in the church had that mind, same mind, the mind of Christ, 
think about how that would transform the community of God. That's what Paul is calling the church in Philippi to. That's what he's calling us to. Not that we would all act the same and look the same and like the same things. No, but that we would have the same mind, the same attitude of Christ and eagerness to love and serve one another. And it would even be further demonstrated and displayed in the fact that we don't all like the same things and we don't all look alike and we, we don't have the same opinion about everything, but we all have the mind of Christ. And so we're willing to put aside our preferences and we're willing to serve one another and we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of one another and we're willing to forgive and we're willing to give and and we're unified because we have the mind of Christ. Paul says such a people are a people who walk worthy of the gospel. Let's pray and ask that God would give us the grace to do just that. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus. God, we confess that as we read these verses here in this passage that, um, that there are truths that are revealed here that are far beyond our own comprehension or ability to fully appreciate. But Father, I pray that as we've walked through this passage this morning that You in Your mercy and grace would open our eyes and our hearts to, to understand and to capture, to sense, to feel something more of the truth that is here. And Father, we pray that as we do so, we would be moved to worship. And as we're moved to worship, that we would be transformed and changed and that we would, in fact, follow the example of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be marked by the mind of Christ. And as a result, we would, we would experience the blessing, the joy of the richness of community and love that You want us to experience. So Lord, come now and apply this Word to our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray.